Hello, my name is Brandon Boat, and you're listening to the Theater of Public Policy podcast. For today's show, we go to an interview that we did out east when we struck out for Washington, D.C. We did seven days of seven different shows. And on this show, we were talking about economics with two very smart folks, Chris Farrell and Cardiff Garcia. Chris Farrell is a friend of the Theater of Public Policy. He's been on the show numerous times before, and we always think he's great. He is currently a contributor at Marketplace of NPR's American Public Media. He was a correspondent for American Public Media's documentary unit, American Radio Works, and he's a regular contributor on economics and public policy for Bloomberg Businessweek. He's also the author of several books, including Unretirement, How Baby Boomers Are Changing the Way We Think About Work, Community, and The Good Life. Our other guest, Cardiff Garcia, is the Financial Times Alphaville U.S. editor. Before joining Alphaville, he spent a little more than two years as a reporter at Dow Jones Financial News, covering investment banking, asset management, and private equity. Along the way, he's written freelance pieces on a variety of other topics, from behavioral psychology to Mai Tai, the latter also being a personal interest that involves frequently getting kicked in the shins and torso and head. Prior to his career in journalism, he spent three years at the J.P. Morgan Private Bank. It covers a wide variety of different economic uh, topics in the show, uh, looking at unretirement, what um, older Americans are doing now that they're no longer able to retire fully. They have to go back to work and face other realities. And Cardiff talks a lot about reporting that he's done recently on Cuba, their economic status, what it means for them to be opening up trade, and the conversation goes to a lot of different places, but I hope you enjoy the show. Thanks. So thank you so much. I, I uh, all the way from New York and from DC. I very, uh, from DC, from New York and from uh, St. Paul. I very much appreciate both of you for joining us. So thank you so much. Uh, so uh, there's so much to talk about. We were saying before the show even that there's sort of more to talk about uh, than we can get to when we're just sort of saying the economy is what we're going to talk about in economic news. Uh, I let's just start with something easy. So the Federal Reserve. Uh, <laughs> no, but the federal, uh, it, I mean, this is, this. Uh, it's interesting to me, and I feel like this story has gone along long enough now, like four or five years, that I'm starting to understand it, uh, where they keep saying, well, we're going to raise interest rates one of these days, and then everyone freaks out, and then they say, no, we're not, and then uh, we all go back to normal. And so, uh, I don't, how many more times can we do that, uh, and when should I actually start to panic? Well, I think you can wait quite a while yet before you go to panic, because you know, part of what's going on is we have the unemployment rate is falling, it's coming down, but there's still a lot of people on the sidelines who are looking for work, would like to have work, uh, and you know, they're, like not getting, they're not getting jobs, they're actually not even that confident that they're gonna get a job, and the other thing is, there is no inflation. I mean, the other thing we've saying for five years, the Fed has been saying, well, we want inflation to be running at a target rate of 2%. They can't get it to the target rate of 2%. So I think between those two things, they started a conversation, I think they regret that they started, because there's simply no reason for them to raise their rate anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, the way I think about the Fed is that it used to be this kind of boring mechanical thing where it would adjust interest rates if the economy was weak, then you lower interest rates, which makes it cheaper to borrow. So if you're a business, then you know you spend more money uh, on hiring people and on new plans or whatever. And if you're a person, then you, know, you take out a mortgage or whatever. The opposite, obviously, applies. Um, the last recession was so severe uh, that the Fed sort of lowered interest rates all the way to zero and couldn't lower them anymore. So essentially, what it resorted to was a couple of things. One was 
mechanically trying to influence different kinds of interest rates that it didn't directly influence before through a thing called quantitative easing we're not going to talk about now. But the other thing that's really been fascinating is that the Fed essentially now operates via like a Jedi mind trick, right? It started to try to influence the psychology of the economy. So essentially what it would do, I mean, the technical term for this is forward guidance, and it's taken a lot of different shapes. But what it would say is, okay, we've lowered interest rates right now as much as we can. But we're also going to promise what we're going to do with interest rates into the future. So let's say you're a business and you're thinking about you know, taking out a loan to invest some stuff. Or you're a homeowner and you think maybe you want to take out a mortgage or you want to get a car loan or whatever. But you're worried that the Fed is going to screw up again. right? That you know, the recession, the last recession was so bad, we might get another one of those. Um, what if in the future the Fed fails to keep the economy growing? Well, what the Fed is saying is, look... Not only are we going to keep interest rates low for now, we're going to keep them low into the future. And the key to remember is this: the Fed doesn't actually have to be, the Fed doesn't actually have to follow that, right? It's trying to induce economic activity now, but it could just bullshit you, okay? So the only thing that actually matters is whether or not the public believes it, whether or not um, whether or not the promise is credible, okay? And so we're at a point now where historically, if you had 5.1 percent unemployment, as we now, you would expect interest rates to be a little bit higher than they are, right? They're not. They're much lower. The Fed has essentially said, well, look, so much damage has ensued from the last recession that we're worried that it's going to take a lot longer um, for the economy to get back to the point where it can sort of uh, have a self-sustaining, robust growth. Uh, and so the Fed made some promises. So far, it's sticking with them. Um, and uh, But essentially what we're talking about now is the reversal of all that. So when it finally starts raising rates, right, it's essentially saying, okay, time's up. We've kept rates low for a very long time, um, but we think the economy is getting close to being sort of back to normal. And we can sort of yeah, – that's a little bit controversial. But now we can start raising rates, and the promise worked. We're done. And those people don't agree with me. Uh, yeah, sure, sure. So just to toss this as a puzzle so we're all waiting for, uh, you know, the kind of economic activity to pick up enough so we're going to get a little bit of inflation, the Fed's going to raise its interest rates. But what if in a world of hydratic, hydraulic fracking, Amazon, Uber, this global economy, we're pretty much around the price level that we're going to be. We have an intense global competition. We have global technologies that is largely a deflationary force. And whether we're living in a period like the end of the 19th century, actually from the end of the Civil War into about 1914, where there are ups and downs in the inflation rate, the fundamental price level was actually going down because we had these massive new technologies like mass production and electrification of society that drove prices down. And there's a question mark out there that the Fed may be waiting for an event that may not happen. Oh, God, it's waiting for Godot for financial <laughs> literates. Uh, I'm sorry. So just to unpack this a little bit, uh, that idea, what, why wouldn't any what, – what are we – I mean, you mentioned what we're waiting for in terms of unemployment and things like that. But, but the, the question is why hasn't inflation really come, come about? Yeah. And there could be lots of reasons. But one of the reasons could be that as we're moving into this high-tech economy with big data – and Uber and Amazon, yeah. and these are driving down prices. And then you also think of the fact that over the past five years, while inflation hasn't been going anywhere, 
Central bankers have worried about inflation every day. They give speeches all the time about whether we have to worry about inflation. They have all sucked at the cut that inflation is the, is the thing that they need to worry about, and that is their job. So all central bankers, <laughs> central bankers are anti-inflation. They see that as their main part of their job. But we have technology that is transforming the global economy. And the fact is, despite everything that's happened the past couple of years, hardly anybody's retreating from the global economy. So that's pushing down. Sure. I was going to uh, go ahead. I can add a pretty cool technological angle to this. Please, I, I mean, because I'm not. This lost. is all extremely, this is all extremely speculative right now. Yes. But out of curiosity, how many people in the audience have seen a cover story in some magazine at some point in the last couple of years that described the robots coming to take my jobs? Yeah. Anybody? I should have thought this through better. The lights are in my face, so I can't actually see anybody <laughs> raising their hand. Okay. Um, but so, so the basic idea is this, and again, this is more a technology story right now than an economic one. But the basic idea is that. In the past, whenever you'd have like these technological innovations, the economy would just adapt. So yes, um, the price of your TV would get cheaper, but you'd have more money to spend on going out to the theater and to restaurants and all that. So then it just the economy just shifted. So you get more jobs for you know people who work at restaurants, chefs, waiters, sommeliers, whatever, and more actors and things of that nature. The question now is whether or not the technologies are starting to take over uniquely human jobs, right? Things that we never could have anticipated humans wouldn't be able to do. Things that involve, you know, judgment, empathy, whatever. The best example I've Not right improv, now, though. No, no, the best example being like this, you know. But I think when, when, uh, when Chris talks about um, what might happen uh, with the price level and stuff, I think what he's saying is that uh, we might get to the point um, where technology is advancing so rapidly and taking over so many jobs uh, that the economy itself uh, remains in this kind of weird situation where the people who own those technologies make a lot of money, but nobody else has money to spend, and so you end up with this really you know, divergent trend. Um, again, totally speculative. We have no idea if that's going to happen. So there's, I mean, we have like five more topics to get to, and um, but I, I can't help but ask this one last question because we talked a little bit about uh, uh, the Fed trying to play off of uh, the psychology of the markets and whatnot. Just, does that actually? Is there any evidence that that works? That you can actually do that? That you can Jedi mind trick the market? It depends on how you define evidence. Okay, so I mean, uh, <laughs> thank you, Mr. Clinton. Uh, economists use like these. Well, I mean, it's very hard. So economists use like these very uh, complicated econometric techniques. The problem is that there's no unanimity over whether or not um, over whether or not they're right. Economists themselves disagree about all this. And so you can use common sense, you can use some of these econometric studies, um, and you can try to sort of tease out cause and effect, but really it's pretty impossible. However, if you look at, and just one, one little addition is when you look at the behavior of the bond market, I think one of the things you take away is that the Fed still has an enormous amount of credibility when it comes to inflation. That the Fed may make a mistake. The inflation that's not happening that is the thing that everyone trusts them on. If inflation does happen, which may not happen, but if inflation does happen, that they'll, they'll respond well. Because if you look at Treasury inflation protected securities, which are a bet on the long term inflation, they just are not seeing you know higher than 2% inflation here in the United States over the next 10 to 20 years. So I think that the Fed has short term, no one knows what they're doing or what they're thinking. Longer term, they have a pretty good idea that they believe they're going to succeed. Good. Um, 
Oh man, these shows just make me uh, need another beer. So, um, so uh, we started talking about uh, globalization and whatnot. Uh, Cardiff, I know you've done a lot of reporting actually from Cuba, not just on Cuba, but from Cuba. So uh, we were talking before the show a little bit. All of us are staying at um, an Airbnb knockoff. We could not afford Airbnb. Uh, so, but you did Airbnb in Cuba, uh, and that that was. That was I, interesting. I, yeah. So I, I think that the experience of Airbnb, which only this year um, was able to start advertising its services uh, for Cuba, uh, is a really kind of intriguing prism through which to understand not just the way that the Cuban economy is changing, but the way that the changes in the Cuban economy are interacting with the softening of diplomacy between Cuba and the U.S. All right. So I'll just tell you the story, and sure. then you can sort of see what happens. So uh, I stayed at a place that is advertised on Airbnb. Now, on the American side, Airbnb is allowed to um, is allowed to book places in Cuba for Americans who can travel to Cuba legally. So, who have one of like the general exemptions that they can travel. So, if you have family there, uh, if you're going as a journalist, as I was, uh, actually, I have family there too. So, never mind. Um, uh, if you're going there on like uh, on a diplomatic mission, if you're going there on like a cultural thing, whatever, you can go. If you don't have one of those exemptions, you're not supposed to use it. If you're a European or an Australian or whatever, you're also not supposed to use it. But the way it works is that um, most people go to Airbnb and they just get the information and they get in touch directly with the person in Cuba on the other side. So they just get the information, they send it there, or they send an email to the person there. When you pay through Airbnb, Airbnb will handle the transaction. But in Cuba, a lot of these people don't have bank accounts, right? A lot of the hosts don't have bank accounts. So Airbnb will arrange through a Cuban payment company to have somebody physically deliver the money to the person who hosts the Airbnb there, right? Then you go to the Cuban side where internet access is incredibly restricted. Um, so in my case, I was interacting with the daughter of the family who hosts the place. And <laughs> She has internet access through her job there, which is a place that produces like uh, Cuban journals. Um, but she, it's monitored, and she's a little paranoid about it. There's still quite a, quite a lot of lingering paranoia from an, an earlier era. And so she can receive emails at work, but she can't send them back, right? Now, internet access in Cuba is very expensive it's for Cubans, right? So when I was there, I would use it at a nearby hotel. It was about $10, the equivalent of $10 US dollars an hour. This is a lot of money in a place where the average state salary, state-given salary, which is most jobs there still, is about 20 to 25 bucks a month, right? Wow. So um, it's very expensive to do that. So what she would do is she would take my emails whenever I'd have a question. Okay, but when she needed to send an email, she'd go into one of these places where she'd pay by the hour, and she would type up the email as quickly as possible so she wouldn't use up that much of her allotted time. Then she would go like, all the way back to work, and she got, I didn't know this at the time, but she got like pissed off when I'd ask some like piddling question about like, well, you know, is there, you know, is there an air conditioner in the room or something like that? And she'd be like, Dude, can you include all your questions in the same email? Because every time I have to get back to you on this, I have to run in the internet house and type up this super fast email and go back to work. Um, so you get sort of a sense of how like, there's going to be an opening of commercial interactions between the two places. It's going to be very slow. There's still a lot of bureaucracy involved, um, not just on the American side, but very much on the Cuban side, which, remember, is still a place that's you know, very poor, uh, still has severe problems with things like you know, there's no free press there, freedom yeah. of speech, dissidents still get rounded up, rounded up and things like that. Um, but there are parts of the economy, including 
these, these sort of uh, bed and breakfast type places that are at least semi-privatized, like heavily taxed but semi-privatized, and those are starting, those things are starting to interact with things that are happening between Cuba and the US. And so I guess the question, and this is a broad, I, I mean this is very much about Cuba, but maybe it gets to a little bit broader globalization question in terms of, uh, we had an embargo obviously, and we still do have an embargo, but the, the argument folks have made in terms of lifting the embargo is that's what's going to change things, right? Like the embargo just throws everything sort of in place. It's the, actually the rising of this market is, and then Cubans wanting to be freer to be able to interact with these things that would actually start to change things. Uh, I should have thought of a way to end that question. <laughs> I think Cuba is one of the classic examples of the failure of an embargo. And you know the cliche used to be if we had only traded Coca-Cola. Well, now it's if we only had used Air, Airbnb earlier. And of course, you can have restrictions, you can have some limits, but um, you really do want to, to maintain that trade, make that sort of there, there, there's a dissolvent in capitalism, and there's a dissolvent in trade. People exchange ideas. You can't help but exchange ideas with capitalism. And the other thing was we had an embargo, but the rest of the world didn't have to have an embargo with Cuba. So it was kind of like an odd mix of things. Mm. But I think Cuba is a classic example that an embargo is a terrible policy. Sanctions can make a lot of sense, or sanctions on certain types of materials and goods, certain type of trade. But if we'd had a back and forth with Cuba over the past 50 years, I think a lot of the situation that, like with Airbnb, didn't exist before, but a lot of that kind of movement that you're describing would have happened a lot earlier. Well, and trying to interact with Cuba now after we've had this embargo for this long is really complicated, right? Like, I mean, it's not as simple as, uh, even you explained with Airbnb, but uh, if a new company wants to go in, they can't just sort of set up shop and start taking customers' credit cards. They have to work with, they have to go through, they have to be a government agency almost, right? Yeah, I mean, so this is something, so I, I, I too favor ending the embargo, and certainly the vast majority of Cubans do, and you can see that not just in you know, quasi-official polls, but you can see it in, there's a great secretive poll done earlier this year by uh, Fusion and, and Univision. How, how do they do a secret poll? Like, <laughs> hello? You, uh, you should invite those guys to be on the show. No, it's a, they would they not show up. They fanned out across the island. They almost got in trouble. But one of the things that the poll showed was that something like 97% of Cubans want the embargo to end. That being said, of all the, the Cubans I've spoken to, there's also a tremendous amount of skepticism about whether or not just ending the embargo necessarily means that their own government is going to loosen things up in a way that they'd like. So let me give you just one example of how foreign companies have trouble doing business in Cuba. Um, they're starting to make exemptions to this, but right now, if you're a foreign company and you want to invest in Cuba or you want to sell things in Cuba, you have to be in partnership with the government. And you're not just a partner, you're a secondary partner. The Cuban government typically takes a 51% stake. Um, now you might think, well, fine, it's a, it's a state-run government, it's a, or excuse me, it's a state-run economy, that's the way they do things, you know what you're getting into. But the more pernicious thing is that you can't hire your own employees there. Obviously, you're going to interact with them if they work in your hotel or whatever. But the way it goes is that the Cuban government hires them. To pay their salaries, you pay the relevant Cuban ministry. So if it's a hotel, you pay the Ministry of uh, Tourism in hard currency, in foreign currency. The Cuban government, okay, which oversees two currencies in the country, one that's convertible to hard currency and therefore is quite valuable, and another one that's just a state peso, right, pays its employees in that cheaper peso. So imagine like the PR problem with an American company going in there saying, okay, I want to invest in Cuba, 
but now I'm going to be in partnership and a secondary partner, a minority partner with the communist government there. And I have this problem of like our employees being exploited. Now again, these things are starting to change. The Cubans are working on something that's a little bit more sensible. Um, and they're going to make some exceptions, and I think this is the kind of thing that you hope would improve over time. But right now, you sort of hear a lot of, well, you know, the, you have to get to Cuba before like the Americans get there, and there's a Starbucks on every corner or whatever. I, I think that tends to be kind of an ill-informed ill opinion. Um, it's not going to be quick. Uh, this is going to take some time, and a lot actually has to change, not just on the American side, but also on the Cuban side. So this goes to, uh, a, it definitely is a broader piece about uh, and Chris, you were starting to allude to this. A lot of this is super, is super complicated. I'm not. Just, I took an economics class once, and uh, but I. Uh, but there's a lot to this. And then we do look to economics, or we look to the Fed, or we listen to uh, our our public radio station, or read the Financial Times, and we expect there to be some sort of explanation at the end of the day. This is why these markets did this. Uh, this is why the Dow went up or down. X, Y, or Z, but then you know you mix in the this insanity sort of in trying to do inner uh, country trade, or you know something happens. There's there's some sort of you know rock slide in China, and all of a sudden diapers are more expensive. And I, in all seriousness, like I I just feel like that it's. Uh, I, are we trying to make sense of something that I'm not just saying this because the Pope is in town? Are we trying to make sense of the universe in a way that only a holy man can do? <laughs> well, uh, yeah. The thing is, when the, just take your example of the stock market. Most of the time, no one has any idea why the stock market went down, why the stock market went up. We attribute reasons. We provide that well, this seems to make sense. This was something we hadn't expected. This is probably what people are upset. If you look at all the stocks in the United States that are traded, why do us? And the index, in the, but only in the index is only a little bit. Why they go up? Why they go down? Who has a clue? The only thing you can say is that over time, that there are underlying major trends that do unfold, and they do end up reflecting in the economy. And the stock market, at some point, does end up reflecting what's going on in the economy. Stock market's not the economy, but it does end up reflecting what's going on. So over a period of time, you can kind of get a sense of what's happening. But here's the problem. Once you kind of get a sense of how the world is going and how it's moving and what is happening, and this is the underlying trend, you're really going to things like productivity and what companies are doing, the world changes on you. And the, and the framework that you are using to understand the world, it never works again, or it doesn't work as well. And this is why you have people on Wall Street, like you know, in, in, the, in the 1980s, was Henry Kaufman, and Henry Kaufman would, would make these pronouncements. And the thing is, Henry Kaufman came out of inflationary Germany, and he was a refugee. He had a particular point of view about how the debt markets work, and it was wonderful. He really captured this rising budget deficit, rising interest rates that most American economists didn't believe could happen. But then the thing is, things started to come down, and he kept saying again and again, no, interest rates are going to go back up. The budget deficit is going to get ever worse. Everything's going to get bad. And he and it changed. So I think, to yes, the world is way too complicated, and that's the magnificent thing about the markets is a totally it's the largest chat room in the world and it's lots of gossip and it's lots of knowledge and it's lots of ignorance and it's lots of stupid people and it's a lot of really smart people and the thing about it is is that you can have um, you know someone can get through the information in the markets can figure out that there's an opportunity to sell someone a product or a service on the other side of the world there's a there's a famous quote 
um, by an economist named John Ken Galbraith, who said that economic forecasting exists to make astrology look respectable. <laughs> and I, I think that kind of applies double to uh, trying to explain markets, right? Um, and it's true, and I, I think those of us who are in economics and finance journalism are sort of all part of the same hypocrisy on this one, because it's been kind of a convention for, you know, as far back as I can remember, that you have to have some kind of explanation to leave any story to explain why stocks went up or stocks went down. Um, and I used to have an argument with uh, an editor about this all the time, and I finally told him that if he ever asked me to write something like that again, I'm just going to say stocks are up because other stocks are up. <laughs> no, we um, I, We don't know what's going on. I think everything Chris just said is absolutely right. And uh, I'm nervous. You should about that. I'm nervous you guys talked yourselves out of a job. Uh, so I just. <laughs> I, so if you just ta what will happen tomorrow? Uh, if you could just make is somebody going to see this? We're alone. When Walter Rissman was the head of uh, Citibank, it was Citibank back then. He was a legendary head of Citibank. It was a large bank that got in a lot of trouble. But he hired a bunch of economists. I think it was ninety economists. And their job was to forecast what interest rates were going to be the next day. And he paid these economists a lot of money. And what they realized is they had no clue. So they just simply took the closing price, uh, what the interest rate was at the end of the day, and told them that's what it was going to be tomorrow. And it worked for about three years until he finally figured out what they were doing. <laughs> I thought that I was not smart enough to get into finance, but apparently, uh, but they know that one now. Uh, yeah. I could think of it. There's probably one. some other ones. Uh, yeah, uh, we're going to bring our two guests back in the second half. Uh, I know I haven't talked, uh, I haven't asked Chris yet about uh, what any of this means for retirement, uh, which I want to. And then we also want to open it up to all of you for your questions. But for right now, we're going to go take our seats in the audience. So can you please do a big round of applause for our two amazing guests? <laughs> Question, uh, please just raise your hand and then I'll probably repeat it just to, to get it into the microphone. So if you have a question, raise your hand and I will uh, call. Yes, right there in the middle. All right. So um, my question is about the health of American uh, economics. And what I mean by that is, is we seem to have a system where economic or social mobility is more difficult than it's ever been. People that have wealth and assets uh, can pass that along to their children and entrench that. People who don't have assets find it increasingly difficult to move in our society. So my question broadly is, is our system healthy and is American economic model at risk because people, although it may be good for shareholders and owners, is it good for individuals? So I think anybody. Anybody. No. No. All right, next question. Uh, I think the healthy American economy is, yeah, we're in pretty bad straits. That what is happening is, you know, a large part of you think about the American dream or immigrants coming into society, you know, a lot of it is that your children are going to do better than you did. And that if you're born into poverty, that doesn't mean that your children are going to be born into poverty. And what has happened is that was a story that was true for a long time in the United States, but it's less and less true. Now when you compare us to Europe, you compare us to Canada, we have less social mobility here. And we still have, uh, you know, we still have social mobility, and then there's some interesting research where if you look at different sectors of the economy, if you look at the, the Twin Cities in Minnesota, or you look at the, the Bay Area, San Jose, and California, you actually have a lot of social mobility. If you look at places, say, in Atlanta, you have very little social mobility. 
So I think this is really, you know, this is one of the big challenges, one of the big issues over the, over the next uh, 20 years that we're going to be dealing with, and we haven't been dealing with it. And there was uh, a talk that was given by Mariana Kosakota, who's the head of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis, and we gave a speech back in 1979 Paul Bolton, head of the Federal Reserve. And that was the time, and you look you you remember, that was the time when people really believed you could not defeat inflation. That inflation was the disease of democracy. That deflation, uh, inflation was really uh, because of all the special interests. And you could maybe do 10%. You could keep inflation around 10%. That was as good as you could get. And Volcker said nonsense. And now you're having a conversation 30 years later about, well, can we get inflation up to 2%? So what uh, Coach Dakota talked about is we're in a similar time of testing. We're in a time of testing when it comes to the job market. We're in a time of testing when it comes to opportunity. And there's some bright signs there, with some move with early education, with at-risk kids, and there's some, some signs that, that things are moving in the right direction. But we need to do a lot more. That is one of the big economic challenges that this society faces over the next two decades. And it's going to take a lot of work because too many people are underemployed, too many people are unemployed, and too many people because um, you know are in poverty and don't see a way out. So yes, I think we are not that healthy. I would approach this question a little bit differently because one of the things that makes it hard to answer is that the trend you're talking about predates the last recession, right? And economists have really struggled to figure out how much of the sluggish growth we've had in the last few years, well, since the recession itself, um, is the result of trends that are secular that have been going on for some time, the rise in income inequality being the main one, um, and which of them are uh, still part of the legacy of what actually was a tremendously severe financial crisis and subsequent recession. Um, and so we know, for instance, that since, uh, since the 90s, actually, um, that workers have been taking a smaller share of the overall income made by the economy. Right, that a lot more has been going to companies. And I mean, everything I'm saying right now is contentious, but that I think is something that's fairly well established. Okay, now there, there are all kinds of explanations that economists give for this: technological changes, uh, globalization, things that, by the way, in the long run are good things, things that we want, but that can really um, cause a lot of short-term disruption to to the lives of people, especially um, especially middle-class workers. Right. Um, and then I don't, and that interacts with the recession itself. And I really, I keep coming back to it because I don't think we can underestimate um, its legacy in the sense that the kinds of things that economists deem to be structural, longer-term things. Okay, uh, we try to separate those things from what are cyclical. In other words, the things that we can expect to get better over time, so long as policy is good. The problem is that the longer that cyclical damage lasts, it becomes structural. There's an easy way to think about this, which is just that if you're out of work for a very long time, okay, it's not just that you're not making money then, it's that you're losing your contacts, you're losing your skills. It gets that much harder to get back into the labor market. So there's a big difference between somebody who's been unemployed for three months and somebody who's been unemployed for three years, right? And that can leave a very, I mean, not just on that individual's life, that can leave a lot of lasting damage to the economy itself. So to try just to have a tiny bit of hope uh, with some of this is, uh, you mentioned there are places that are doing better with some of this than other places. So what are the things that seem to work to some degree, or what should we be trying at least? Well, I think there, 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 are, there are a couple things. I mean, part uh, is um, where, you, well, if you look at the, say, the Bay Area, you just simply have a white-hot economy. 
you just have a very strong economy. And one of the things off, you know, in, in, in terms of you know, this impact of the, of the recession, you just can't underestimate how important strong economic growth is. And when it is, so, so uh, as Larry Summers says, you want an economy where workers aren't looking for jobs, firms are looking for workers. And that's when the economy is strong. So in the Bay Area, a lot of it just has to do with there's a very low unemployment. There's essentially a zero unemployment rate in large parts of the Bay Area. If you look at the Twin Cities, you have an extremely strong civic culture. You have a very strong nonprofit community that tries to be as inclusive. Now, there's lots, there are lots of flaws, not as good as it should be. Nevertheless, that's what's going on there. And so, um, and I think that we're also seeing some signs of, you know, as you mentioned, I wrote this book on unretirement, and what you're seeing is a very exciting movement about people deciding that, you know, they've gained all this knowledge and skill and experience over the years, and they don't want to walk away from that completely. And they've been trying to figure out a way to both earn an income in the traditional retirement years, but also give back and give meaning. So I don't think it's a completely bleak picture, but there are some real issues in terms of the economy not growing fast enough to generate the kind of job growth that we'd like to see that would give labor more power relative to, to capital. And then also there are sectors in our economy where that's where things like early childhood education become so important that with early childhood education, you just get a leg up in our society rather than being weighed down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would, I would add quickly two things. I mean, one is there are still pockets of hugely impressive um, innovation within the US economy. I don't think anybody would deny that. The second thing is that we've actually learned a really key lesson since the recession that we weren't really sure about in the 2000s. And it's not just a lesson that we've learned from the US, but from all across the developed world, right? From Europe and Japan, which is that actually the official sector, and by that I mean the combination of the central bank and the government, right? Actually has a lot of space to work. And by that I mean that we can borrow a lot more money to invest in things. The government can borrow a lot more money than we once thought possible um, to invest in the economy and to make it better. And, I would, I would quickly add that this doesn't have to be a left versus right thing, a free market versus um, you know, an interventionist thing. Um, if you want to think that the government should be sending money directly to low-income households rather than investing in infrastructure or whatever, that's fine. That's a different conversation. But the point is that the government has a lot of fiscal space to work. It hasn't actually deployed anywhere close to all that it could deploy in combating the effects of the last recession. But we've learned that it does have the capacity to do so. I can tell you that if we run into another catastrophic, catastrophic downturn, um, I'm a little bit comforted by that because part of the problem um, is that it hasn't wait, used what, what, wait, what? Wait, 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 you're comforted by another uh, downturn? That if, no, no, that if we get into one of those things, then we've learned that the government can do something about it, right? The bigger question is whether or not the politics will work. Um, but this is an economics thing, so I won't even go there. <laughs> okay, good. Other questions? Other questions? Yes, up there. All right, I'll preface this by saying I'm one of these absolutely useless economists that actually doesn't know what we're doing up here. But um, in all this light, we talk a lot about uh, it's not enough, it's not good enough, it's not healthy, the economy's not doing better. In my mind, that begs the question, what is good enough? And more importantly, given the political climate that we're in Washington, D.C., what are the key things that you would like to see debated in the upcoming elections around making the economy good enough by whatever choice? I just, I love this is like just a Jewish mother question. What's good enough for you? Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> yes. It's a good question. So what should we be talking about? Well, I think one of the, just building off of what you said is, you know, if you're, what Washington, D.C. should be talking about is 
you just have to you know, look at our ports, look at our roads, look at our airports. And you, know, you just don't have to be, our infrastructure needs are enormous. And when you have interest rates as low as they are, the cost of capital is really low. And if you can raise the productivity of the infrastructure, that's going to benefit business, that's going to end up showing up in the wages of workers. That to me just seems to be the no-brainer issue that's out there, which is why aren't we addressing a lot of this? And there might be a little bit of waste, but you know, corporate America wastes a lot too when they're, we're investing. And, and the other thing is, there's some good ideas about a national infrastructure bank that can help minimize some of the concerns. So one of the big things that I just don't understand is why we are not simply investing more in infrastructure that is crumbling, that is hurting productivity, that is hurting profits, and that is hurting worker wages. The other thing that I would like, love to see people talking about, and they're not, is, um, is you know, creating incentives for people to work longer, to continue to contribute, to continue to uh, pay taxes. And there's a lot that the federal government can. I mean, one of the things that I do not understand, 42% of private sector workers do not have access to retirement savings plan with their employer. So one-third of U.S. households don't, don't have access to employer-sponsored retirement savings plan. This makes no sense. Guess what? We're aging. People do need to save for their retirement. There's all kinds of good ideas about how to do it. Open up the federal thrift savings plan, one of the best defined contribution plans in the world. There's all kinds of good ideas out there. Just do something about it. But it seems like people want to sort of complain about it and not actually do something. And that's something is not that hard. Nobody ever asked the candidates about monetary policy. Hugely important. And nobody ever asked them, well, if you were in charge, who would you appoint to the Fed, right? Not just to run the Fed, but who would you appoint to the FOMC? Um, and I think it's uh, I think it's a big mistake given how important it is. And I guess I guess one of the reasons they never get asked about this is because maybe the assumption is that they're too dumb to talk about it. And I'm not saying that's wrong, <laughs> all right. Uh, but I but I think it's uh, it's something that always goes underexplored and underdebated. And then when somebody gets you know when somebody becomes president we're sort of left to wonder exactly what their views are, what kind of advisors they would turn to on monetary policy, and I think it's a shame. Without saying necessarily like particular people to appoint to those, are there traits or things that you're like, oh, these are the, uh, if I were to ask a political candidate who they would appoint to this, and they didn't say, oh, this person, but these are the things I would look for in a person, what would that be? Uh, I mean, you know, uh, Part of this, I don't, I don't want to impute my beliefs on anybody else. I mean, part of this depends on whether or not you have a bias towards looser policy now or tighter policy now. Um, the ability to forge consensus has clearly become very important since the Greenspan years, right? Bernanke was pretty good at it. Jen Yellen's pretty good at it. Um, and it's sort of clear now that when you have to sort of steer this, you have to wrangle this committee, which, by the way, you know, its composition changes each year because there's a, there's a substitution of four of the... Um, of the regional bank presidents each year, um, it's a hard job, right? You have to be able to listen, you have to be able to steer them in your direction when that's necessary. Uh, and I think that's, uh, that's hugely important. The second thing is somebody who's really uh, able to communicate well with the public. We talked about the Jedi mind trick earlier, forward guidance. Communication has become a massively important part of the Federal Reserve's job. Um, I happen to think Janet Yellen is fantastic at it. Hmm. Right? People disagree with me, but uh, I, I think that's what you want to look out for. Okay, I want to get. Uh, I want to make sure I read time. Which is a hand right here. Uh, I'll go up there. I, I want to. I don't want to ask all boy questions, but I, I already. <laughs> <find it. laughs> I'm looking for. I'm looking. The two men raise their hands. So yes, right here. Though I'm going to 
break my rule. Go ahead. Uh, so as economic journalists, if you had to pick one storyline that you think is a myth, whether you debate whether these things are myths or not, whether it's whether it's a student loan crisis or that China is going to overtake the U.S. as a you know, world power, um, do, what, what do you think is, is falsely written about? I'm not disappointing to your question, by the way. This is, this is a spotlight right now. Uh, then we have to worry about the national debt. I think that should be, I mean, I'm not saying you totally ignore it, but I would put that at like number 297 or something. Yeah. Oh, that was easy. Uh, uh, so, ma'am, yes. Um, I guess I'm not totally sure how to word this, but you were talking about the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, the economy being very strong and unemployment being very low. I think the D.C. area has generally also gotten along pretty well since the recession. Um, but, and I don't know San Francisco well, but I feel like it has the same issue with D.C. where it has like a lot of very, very wealthy people and then a lot of people who are employed but have like really shitty paying jobs. And I, I guess my sense, I mean, I personally feel like that's morally wrong, but like from an economics perspective, I feel like that's also bad for the economy to have some people who are um, underemployed? Yeah, yeah, like underemployed and not, <laughs> yeah, or, or people who just aren't making enough to live on. So um, I guess, yeah. what are your thoughts about that? No, I mean, I think that this, this gets at a, at, at a very core issue. And just a, a couple of thoughts. I mean, one is, as our economy has evolved, metropolitan areas have become increasingly important. I mean, that is really, you know, we've become a metropolitan area economy. Cities' economies have gotten uh, on a global scale, and particularly with the U.S., have gotten very, very important. What you see in a lot of cities is the big divide between college-educated or post-secondary education and not having the post-secondary education. And that really does play out. So, you know, my feeling is that um, when you look at a lot of cities and you're looking at minorities and low income, and you look at a place like D.C., or you look at the Bay Area, or you look at New York City, there still are a lot more opportunities than in the cities that are growing really slowly, that the cities are not expanding, and it, that our eyes are a little bit deceiving, and that if, if you look at New York City, um, you know, the recent data is that Hispanics and Blacks with a college education have benefited disproportionately from the expansion of the information technology business in those cities. So I think it's a very mixed picture, but overall, I think you just hit on the issue that troubles everybody, which is, you know, how do, how do you keep the dynamism and the creativity and the innovation and the risk-taking in an economy and at the same time provide a living wage for, and include everybody that is within that economy? And a lot of our discussions is really debating about how do you best do that. And by the way, there, I mean, there's one easily identifiable obstacle to that kind of dynamism, especially in urban areas. Uh, rental costs, right? This is a problem certainly in San Francisco. It's definitely a problem in New York. From what I understand, I don't live here in DC, it's getting worse, right? Um, now, uh, there's a, again, there's a very kind of contentious debate over what's causing it, right? But anti-density codes, right, in places that want density, and also enforced density codes in places that don't want it, like my hometown of Tampa, Right? The whole thing ends up leading to urban sprawl because the people who want the big single-family homes just end up going further out into the suburbs. Right? But in, in, um, in cities in particular, this is a huge problem. Um, housing becomes scarce relative to the people who want to go there. And this doesn't just exacerbate the inequality problem in those cities. Right? It also keeps more people from moving to those places. And in some cases, it's so bad that people actively leave because of it. 
right? This is terrible. This is people who want to be there, who want to work in a place where they're going to benefit from all the kind of um, from all the kind of synergies or whatever you call it that you get from being in a place where a lot of people in your industry work, where you can bounce ideas off each other, where you can form teams and things like that. Uh, that is a huge problem. I don't see any obvious way around it. A lot of this is caused by state and local uh, rules rather than things that are set at the federal level, but it's something that I really wish would get a lot more attention. So uh, we're over time, but I, I do want to try and end on an optimistic or, or forward-looking yeah. note uh, to some degree, not uh, and without declaring war on the states or the cities. So um, uh, I, I wanted to sort of ask both of you about uh, what is who who's our savior? Like who's got and not because the Pope's in town, but who is uh, who's going to fix this? And I'm going to set Chris up here by saying, is it the folks who are not retiring? Uh, are they going to save save us? No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's show, everyone. Uh, but here's the thing: you have this you have this grassroots movement around the country. Of people are rethinking the second half of life, and it's really exciting. It's an experiment, but the thing is, anybody who's been who's been involved in experiments, you know, some of them don't work out. All right, but the thing that's really exciting about the baby boomer experimentation, rethinking the second half of life, is what it means for my 23-year-old that when he's in his 50s, he's going to have a whole different expectation and path laid out for him. Because he's going to look at the experiments, what works, what doesn't work. So I actually think the millennial generation, the younger generation, what the baby boomers are doing is exciting for them. Not necessarily so much for the boomers, but for the younger generation. Because they have a very different image of the second half of life and what you can get out of the job market, what you can get out of life. Uh, I'm going to go with two categories because I totally agree about uh Young people, they're, by the way, they've just become, I think the ages 20 to 24, they've just become the biggest cohort in the country, yes. right? So yeah, we have, we're looking at some pretty difficult demographic trends over the next like 15 years or so. But after that, this is a generation that just went through a brutal recession, learned some really valuable lessons, just as, I mean, you know, during the Great uh, Depression. Um, that was a group of people that saved a lot of money. They were industrious, they were thrifty. I think they're gonna be a big benefit. Um, and let's not forget immigrants who also help a tremendous amount um, with the demographic issue. And by the way, they're the reason that the U.S. isn't facing um, the kind of ending of the demographic dividend that, for instance, Japan has been enduring for the last you know, 20 years or so. Um, I think, you know, it's, I don't want to make this like too political, um, but if we're talking about people that help save us, I mean, these are people that come here, they work their asses off, uh, they make it a more dy dynamic economy. Um, and they also bring with them demand for housing and goods and things like that. They're part of what makes uh, the U.S. what it is, and I think uh, you know we ought to be grateful. That is such a beautiful note to end on, ladies and gentlemen.